Well, people say it different ways. Uh, aim at everything and you'll hit nothing. It's better to be good at just a few things than mediocre at lots of things. In this life, we can only really do a few things really well. The point is the same. Narrowing in on what really matters is important. Priorities are important for navigating this life with all of its demands. And as we've talked about so far in our Margins sermon series, some really important God things, God things happen when we have margin, when we don't write all the way to the edge of the page, when we create space in our minds, in our heart, and in our lives. Uh, If it's true that in this life we can only do a few things really well, then it's probably important, probably a good idea to make sure that one of those things is what Jesus says is the most important. Loving our neighbors. Loving our neighbor. And yet, our lifestyle, our pace, our culture make this harder than ever. If we're honest with ourselves, our lack of margin for neighboring has made us at times look more like tourists than neighbors. More like tourists than neighbors always moving around constantly, never really belonging, always interested in collecting experiences, but remaining superficial and and disconnected. But God has a much more beautiful and better way of life in mind. And to experience that life, it's important to have a margin for our neighbor. Let's pray. God, open our hearts and minds to your word for us this day. We pray that it would take root there, grow us, transform us, that we might live for you, bear fruit for your kingdom. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, verses 25 through 37. I invite you to listen for God's word. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, 
the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, you could probably make a good case that this is one of the most familiar stories that Jesus ever told. Everybody knows what you mean when you say that someone was a good Samaritan, right? But it's one thing to to know this story and another thing to actually tease out and live out its implications. That's because it's also one thing to know what the greatest commandment is and another thing to actually live it out. Because to do that, we actually have to have margin for our neighbor. Something obvious in the story that we think we know so well. Now, in, in the story, an unnamed man, we don't know who he is, I don't know much about him, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, a dangerous 17-mile trek through rocky desert terrain, lots of places for uh, robbers to hide. And he did, and he encountered thieves who stripped him, who beat him, who left him near dead. I mean, this man needed help desperately. The fact that the very next sentence begins with, it just so happened that a priest came walking down the road, sets the hearers up with hope, right? How fortunate. Like, not, not only is someone coming, but this someone is a priest. Surely someone committed to caring for a person in need. Someone we would expect to have a margin for someone else in trouble. And yet, when he saw the injured man, he, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Same with a Levite, another highly regarded religious figure. He saw the man, crossed over to the other side, and went on his way. Now, there have been all kinds of, of speculation as to why these, these religious figures, why these religious men did not stop to help. Uh, some point to the fact that Jewish law forbade uh, priests and Levites from touching dead bodies because it would make them impure and un- unable to perform their priestly duties in the temple. Uh, but Jewish law was also pretty clear about obedience to God's law of love, right? The very command that Jesus affirms prior to telling this story. And, and Mishnah law which was the, the, the oral uh, tra- tradition that expanded upon the Torah, stated that if a priest on a journey came upon a dead body, it was his responsibility to bury it. So who knows? Maybe they were in a hurry to do God's work. Maybe they saw the wounded man and just thought that he was a distraction from, from what they were supposed to do. Maybe they were on their way to or on their way back from a, an important priestly obligation. No time to spare. No margin. Does it really matter? In the end, Jesus doesn't give an excuse or an explanation in the story because ultimately there is none. No reason is given because in the end, no reason justifies. Finally, uh, a Samaritan who we're told is on a journey. Interestingly, in the story, he's the only one we actually know why he's traveling on the road. He's on a journey. He, and, uh, he, he passes by. He passed by. Now, Samaritans were enemies of the Jewish people. The last person on earth who would want to stop and help a Jew, the last person on earth that a Jew, even near death, would want helping him or her. He saw the man, and instead of passing by on the other side, he 
was filled with compassion and went to the man and helped him. For whatever reason, this Samaritan had a margin, had a margin to be a neighbor. And go and do likewise, Jesus says. Right away, there, there is a clear difference between the first two and the Samaritan beyond their, their uh, religious and ethnic differentiation, right? The first two saw, and even the wording is, is similar. The first two saw and moved to the other side of the road. The Samaritan saw and was moved by compassion. By compassion. Moved by compassion. Do we not think that this man had somewhere to be? Some place to go also? Do we not think that likely Samaritans probably had some type of law about touching dead bodies? Do we forget that Jews and Samaritans had a bitter history of no margin for one another, for the other group? And yet compassion trumps all that. Having a margin for our neighbor in our lives begins with having a margin for our neighbor in our hearts. It means being moved with compassion. As followers of Jesus, because of God's compassion toward us, we develop an unwavering compassion toward others. That's what motivated God to take the relational risk to be our neighbor. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became our neighbor in Jesus Christ because God's heart was moved by an unrelenting compassion. In fact, interestingly, many of the early church fathers interpreted this story Jesus told allegorically, saying that humanity was the man beaten and left for dead on the side of the road in the ditch, and Jesus was the Samaritan man who saw our plight, crossed over the road from heaven to earth to rescue, heal, and restore us. Cultivating a margin for our neighbor happens as our hearts are moved by God's compassion toward us. Do we use the God-given gift of love we have in Jesus Christ as a way of boosting our own sense of isolation, security, purity, or as a call to extend that love and compassion? Our hearts should be beating so full of God's love pouring into us that our only choice is for that same heart to beat fiercely for our neighbors. Not because we're trying to save them, but because we're being saved. That's the only way we're going to be able to create margin for neighboring over all the other things that vie for our attention. And Jesus actually had the audacity to believe that compassion rooted in God's love for us has the power to create margin where we think there is none. The power to create margin where we think there is none. Hurry and compassion are not compatible. Hurry and compassion are not compatible. And often, if we're honest, we we move to the other side of the road way more often than we're moved by compassion. But... But, and I really believe this, like water gradually digging a new stream in rock or dirt, compassion, when it's rooted, when it's sourced by God's compassion, will find a way to help us move toward our neighbor, even when we think we have no time or space for it. Margin for neighbor starts with our hearts. 
starts with our hearts. But like other areas where we need margin, it's not solely a matter of heart or motivation. There's also the practical. And so we ask the same question, maybe not out loud, but internally all the time that the lawyer did. Okay, yes, margin for neighbor, great. But who is my neighbor? You know, like, I mean, who really is my, my neighbor? We're usually looking to create a set of terms uh, for our behavior that is self-justifying, a, a loophole, if you will. And ironically, we use this story itself as a way to, f- uh, to forget to love our literal neighbors, which is actually the easiest and most important place to begin practically creating the margin for neighboring. A margin for neighbors starts local, as local as you can get. We tell ourselves, everybody is our neighbor, and while that's true, we, we define it, therefore, in the broadest of terms, right? They're the people across town, the people that are helped by the organizations that we donate money to. We insist that we're, we're neighbors with everybody, but I don't know a single person with that name, do you? We tell ourselves we've got a lot going on in our lives, and surely, uh, surely so, so the, the great commandment only applies to the wounded enemy lying beside the road. And since we haven't come across, come across many of those, we, surely we're doing just fine. Except, what about our literal neighbors? The people on the other side of the road from us, next door, that we don't pay enough attention to. It's an obvious detail in the story. But the hurt man was literally beside the road, right in front of people's faces as they passed by. Sure, the priest and the Levite, they they see him, but do they really see him? They don't really see him, do they? We have people literally across the street from us, next door. You know, our actual neighbors. A margin for neighbors should begin with the people who live on the same street as we do. We have to start seeing them, as Frederick Buechner writes, and I love this, with our imagination as well as our eyes. That is to say, like artists, we must not just see their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. When we have a margin for neighbor, we deeply see and notice the people who live near us. We see the elderly gentleman who's cutting his grass and the fact that, you know, it'd probably be nice if we offered to do it for him. I mean, maybe he likes the exercise, but still. We overhear the conversation with a neighboring child playing with our own child, and it sounds like from the conversation that their family may be going through a little bit of a financial struggle, a season of difficulty, and, and we realize we, we could probably do something to help. We notice the house down the street uh, for, that had been for sale now has a new family that's just moved in. And so we, we go introduce ourselves and we bring them some veggies from the garden or maybe a bottle of wine. It starts local. But pastor, having a margin for neighbor, even for the people next door, that sounds amazing in theory. That sounds amazing in theory, Pastor. But it also just sounds like one more thing to add to our lives. Isn't this a sermon series about margin? When we moved here, this is something, this is an art that we had to to learn. And and, and while I don't think I do it perfectly or we do it perfectly, one thing I've learned is I've tried to have better margin for neighbor 
is I've discovered it's, it's less about addition and more about alignment. It's less about addition and more about alignment. There are things that we do every day that with a little intentionality, we can incorporate neighboring into. In other words, instead of stressing about adding one more kind of relational activity to an already packed schedule, we need to consider how to align the rhythms of our lives alongside the rhythms of other people. The Samaritan was on a journey. When he bandaged up the man, he takes him to an inn. Who knows, perhaps he had to stay there anyway if it's a long journey. Perhaps he was new, he was going to have to stay there on the way back. And so, why not have the hurt man recover there? There are regular rhythms in our lives that provide opportunities for us to incorporate our neighbors. Maybe you walk regularly. You're going to do that anyway. Why not invite your neighbor to tag along? You have to eat every single day. Why not have a neighbor join you for dinner or supper or drinks? You set aside time on a Saturday to make a repair to your home. You know your neighbor is super handy and he's at home. Why, why not ask for some help and then offer to return the favor sometime? More about alignment than addition when we're thinking about a margin for our neighbor. And that, that's one of the biggest reasons why this church is not program or building focused. There is nothing programmatic that happens here during the week. And we're okay with that. <laughs> Why? So that we have a margin for neighboring in the spaces that we live, work, and play. So that we, we as a church with programs, don't take away time and space for the command that Jesus gave us. Right? Because it's a margin for neighbor that is the life that is really life. That's what the lawyer asks. That's what precipitates this story in the first place. And when he's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not talking about what must I do to get to heaven, because then that would have rendered the cross pointless and Jesus' answer pointless. He's talking about how do I experience fullness of life right now? Eternal meaning the source, not the length. How do I experience abundant life right now? Neighboring. And this was proved by sociologists who studied a small town in eastern Pennsylvania in the 1960s called Rosetto, a local physician noticed that it seemed that heart disease in, uh, was rare in Rosetto, which was named for the Italian city that are the roots of its founders. Researchers discovered a near zero cardiac mortality rate for men aged 55 to 64. And for men above the age of 65, the local death rate was half the national average. Why such extraordinary heart health? Researchers assumed that the answer lay with diet and exercise and, and labor habits. But the investigators were stunned to discover that this was not the case at all. The people of that town drank plenty of wine, ate classic Italian foods rich with cholesterol and fat and carbohydrates. Smoking was a daily habit for the men, most of whom worked in backbreaking and toxic conditions at the local quarry. So none of this made sense to the researchers. And then sociologists went door to door and interviewed people. And here's what they found. The crime rate was zero. There were no applications for public assistance. A rich, community-wide social life was practiced. 
The haves and the have-nots partied, prayed, played together. The wealthy did not flaunt their affluence. Local businesses received virtually all their patronage of the town from the townsfolk, despite the fact that there being larger stores in neighboring towns. Though families were very close-knit and there was, a, there, there was still yet a spirit of assistance and friendly concern and a tangible regard for neighbors as well. In other words, no one was alone. The people in the community had healthy hearts because the community had a heart for one another. Life was good because lives were connected. The Rosetto effect as it became to be known, did not last. Unfortunately, by 1992, Rosetten suffered the same rate of heart disease as neighboring cities. Single-family homes had become the new norm. Fences appeared. Churches moved to the outskirts of town. Community fabric wore thin, and the margin for neighboring decreased. Friends, the, the neighboring effect is real. The neighboring effect is real. It was real for Jesus. Margin for neighbor matters. That's why Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. When we have a margin for neighbor, we have a heart that beats more like God's. We don't pass by on the other side. We move toward. And when we do... We live out what Jesus says is the most important way we experience the life that is really life right now. Go be a neighbor. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.